how important is it that we understand the word sin? This is how important it is. First of all, the gospel is good news. But what makes the good news good is that it addresses really, really bad news. It addresses incredibly bad news. And the incredible bad news is that Scripture declares something interesting. It's part of that peculiar heritage of our faith that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We find that in Psalm 14. Uh, and we find it, uh, again, Paul uh, uh, restating Psalm 14 for the purposes of explaining the theological importance of the gospel. He begins in Romans, Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. He goes on, starts off with talking about the Gentiles all being under the wrath of God, that they're, they're foolish. Then he addresses the sinfulness of the Jews. He's trying to show that, that like, if, you're, if you're, a, you're one of God's chosen people as a Jewish believer in the Messiah, uh, you're not in any better uh, position and he, he, it brings it to kind of the, the pinnacle of his argument is found in Romans chapter 3 when he says, he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He like, and he quotes from Psalm 14 that there's none who does good, no, not one. Not one. There is none who does good, no, not one. Now, we're living in the, in the light of a, of a tragedy right now, this morning. How many of you heard about the shooting that happened in the middle of the, the night? Uh, actually, only about half of you. Uh, there was a shooting in Orlando, Florida um, at 2 a.m. Uh, a, uh, they sang a satirist act as an American Muslim walked into a, gay, a packed gay bar in the middle of Orlando and killed 50 people at 2 a.m., 50 people, uh, and another, what, 40? I, since I read the news earlier, it could be the death toll. I think it's one of the worst in, on U.S. soil uh, as far as shooting goes. Um, and this was all done in the name of probably, from the shooter's perspective, this was done in the name of righteousness, in the name of God, uh, as a vessel of his righteous, Allah's righteous vindication of the sin or the corruption of mankind. Um, it's fascinating to me uh, that we look, it's tragic, and we, need to, and we will pray at the end of this for the families of those, uh, th- those uh, who have lost loved ones in such a horrendous act. But when we hear about an event like that, we think of that, that, that is, that's so, there's a, there's a righteous indignation in us that says, that, that is so horrible, that that's so far from what I'm like. Like, I'm not like that. And, and, and the reason that you think like that, if you think like that, is because you have defined sin in a, in a way that is not biblical. You have defined sin as a measurement of how, uh, of how, of how bad you are. But sin is not a measurement of how bad we are Sin is more truly a measurement of how good we're not. Now, if I was to define sin for you, I would, let me begin by giving you an illustration because I think in, in order to understand the biblical perspective on sin, we have to actually uh, begin with, a, with an illustration that I think is helpful. If you miss the bus by, 
by a minute and another person comes along and misses it by 15 minutes, you don't turn to that person and say, I only missed it by one minute. Because the fact is, is that you're both still standing there. And this is a reality around sin is that you've missed the bus. And that gives us an an understanding even of the the writers of the New Testament, when they talk about sin, they talk about it in a a way of, of, of missing the mark. The very the, the English word sin comes from a Latin word that comes from archery, and it literally means to miss the mark, that there's a target, and there's only one spot that is right on, and anything outside of that target, whether you miss the, the pad altogether uh, or you hit it somewhere outside of that center, you have sinned. You miss the mark. There's one mark. There's only one spot that makes the mark right, and anything outside of that mark is a miss. It doesn't matter the distance from the mark. It's not a measurement. Now, we've created new archery things where it's based, you know, you get the 10, you know, we think of it in terms of darts. It's not like that. The, The Latin word is there's one spot that's right, and anything outside of that is wrong. And we think of that in terms of God, that God's, God's holiness is, is, speaks of his utter sinlessness, his perfections, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And that holiness means that anything that is actually outside of his holiness, no matter how close you think you are to God, that one, one missing of the mark is enough to create separation between a God who is perfect and humanity who is not. But see, what we have done is we have begun to measure our sins rather than looking at the dilemma, which is sin, singular. A disposition to do that which we, are, that we ought not to do. And I think in order for us to define what is sin, we have to actually begin to look at the biblical narrative starting in Genesis with our first parents. And what we have is this, that sin is, and if you're taking notes, I would say that the first thing that we can say sin is, is that it is rebellion. It's rebellion. Rebellion against what? It's rebellion against God's sovereign rule. Now, this is what it is. If you think about, uh, if you think about this, this verse, uh, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 15, as it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. What is, Hebrews, what is the writer of Hebrews looking back to? He's looking back to Israel in the wilderness, and, he, and they, they were given instruction by God who was going with them, moving with them. And their rebellion was their refusal to do what he stated. Now, take that principle and go back to the garden of our first parents. And what did God give to Adam and Eve? Uh, he He calls them into a covenant partnership with himself. He creates this beautiful garden, a garden that's perfectly created for human existence. And he asks them to partner with him as a as covenant partners in right relationship with him, uh, right relationship with one another. They were naked and not ashamed. Uh, they were, and they were as covenant partner, as a covenant people with God and in covenant partners bringing rule to the world. Uh, they were to, to live in right relationship with him and they were just told that they were to not do one thing. There's a couple trees in the garden they were not to eat of. And, 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 and what happens is that the serpent 
The devil appears in the narrative. We don't know where he comes from. It doesn't actually say. It just is there. And the the purpose of the narrative is to help us understand this this temptation uh, that is that is that is unfortunate because of the first, our first parents' fall, uh, to rebel against God's rule. And what was the temptation? Did God really say that you shouldn't eat of this fruit? And God's withholding from you information. Just take into your hands your own life, essentially. And what we have is, is our first parents doing something that was actually contrary to God's rule. He said not to eat of the fruit. They ate of the fruit. It wasn't that there was this magic reality in the fruit, that they ate of the fruit and the fruit indu- you know, put into them some sort of you know, mystical knowledge. But what was really symbolic in the eating of the fruit is that up to that point, God was the one who defined what was right and wrong. The moment they rebelled against God, they were now choosing for themselves what is right and what is wrong. God's rule doesn't apply to me. Rebellion. Rebellion is our desire to decide for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. But the absurdity of this is the moment we try to do that, we actually enslave ourselves and become inhuman. In fact, the reason the law is given, God's law, a law that, by the way, that we probably, each one of us, violate each and every day from the moment we wake up until the moment we go to bed. It's not that... that, that being born again means that we just continue in sin without, uh, without concern. It just is the reality that as long as we are in fallen bodies with fallen minds, that we will always have a disposition to, re- to rebel against God's rule. It's not the little things that you do wrong or the big things that other people do wrong. It's the fact that you often take your own life into your own hands without regard to Jesus. That's the reality. That's the rebellion. And this rebellion plays itself out in a million ways. Why did God give the law? Look at the Ten Commandments. Think about it. I mean, it says, it says you should not commit adultery. Like, I've never committed adultery, but then Jesus takes it even a step further and goes to the heart of what causes adultery. He says, any man who's looked at a woman lustfully in his heart has committed adultery with her. And you're like, oh, man, I'm in trouble. Or don't murder. You're like, I've never murdered anyone But then it says, Jesus says, if anyone is angry with his brother or sister without cause, he has committed murder. You see, Jesus goes to the root. Sin begins in the heart. And he says it himself that the heart is wicked and deceitful above all things and not to be trusted. There is a continual rebellious nature. And we see this in kids. Why do we give rules to our children? Why do we put parameters on our kids? What's the purpose of the law? It's to protect our kids. Don't do this or there'll be consequences. One of the great dilemmas that we see in our society today is there has been an eradication of an understanding of sin. We don't call sin sin anymore. Now we call it disease. My father's been an alcoholic for the last 45 years. And we'll say, well, it's, he has a genetic disposition toward it. It's a disease. No, it's still, it may be that, but it is still ultimately a rebellion against God's sovereign rule. And the consequence of that. There's a breakdown in what it means to be a human being. Now, I look at rebellion and I look at the law. I was thinking, think about this. It's like, oh, I, if, I, if I'm angry without a cause, I've committed murder. Well, I murdered like three people on the freeway yesterday. 
One woman I murdered for like three minutes in my head before the Lord got a hold of me. Uh, you know, it's like, how dare she go 85 when I'm driving 100? Uh, you know, and it's like, why would she cut me? Why did she just get out of the fast lane? I'll run you over. I'll run you over. And then I'm like, the Lord's like, slow down. And I'm like, okay, for like two minutes. And I think that this is the rebellion. I, I was thinking, I, we used to live across the street from Abernathy Elementary. And I remember going over there. And it's like the age that we live in is there is such a fear of, of putting parameters on, on people. The, the new parenting of, of, for millennials is like, you know, don't crush their little spirits. And so I watched, a, I remember watching a, a little toddler, probably a four-year-old, hit his mom in the face and tell her over and over that he hates her. And, and she's like, you don't mean that. You don't mean that, buddy. Don't see that. That hurts, mama. Don't. And it was like she was getting all embarrassed and flushed. And I'm like, he does mean it. If you don't stop him, I'm going to pick him up and spank him for you. <laughs> and there's just this, this, this ridiculousness of like we are afraid to create parameters. But parameters are actually what make our kids feel safe. And God gives parameters. He gave rules to our first parents just as he gives rules to us because he wants us to thrive. He wants us to live. One of the most beautiful things in a home is a fire in a fireplace. It's beautiful because it has parameters. One of the most dangerous things in a home without a fireplace is fire because it's dangerous. And so it is. God gives us rules not because he's a taskmaster, not because he's trying to put a cage around your life, but his rules are for the purpose of helping us live fully. We live in a society that claims freedom, but we're not actually free. And our freedom is actually, is actually created by the limitations. You aren't free. You know, we say we have freedom of speech. Oh, yeah? Go to any airport and yell out, I have a bomb. <laughs> See how free you are. See how funny that joke is when you're tackled. It's, you're not free to do whatever you want. In fact, the freedom that you do have is a limited freedom that is built upon the parameters that have been put on your life. There's a reason why I shouldn't drive 100 miles an hour. I broke that law because I'm a lawbreaker just like you are. You may be a different kind of lawbreaker, but I'm telling you we break the law because we're rebellious. And rebellion is the outcome of sin. That's essentially what sin is. It's a rejection of God's sovereign rule. So every time you say, I will define for myself what my life will be, you are rebelling against God's rule. And this is a problem that we have to recognize. Not only is it rebellion, but secondly, sin is rejection of God's grace. It's actually a refusal to receive his love because the moment you rebel against his rule, it's often because you actually misunderstand his very character because sin actually pollutes and perverts our understanding of who God is. And what sin does is it causes us to reject his goodness. One of the things that it says in Psalm 14, it says that the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And we don't seek God anymore. We live in a godless age. And even within the church, Christians who have so, have, have so lost the foundations of their faith, they don't even know where to begin. I talk to Christians all the time. They're like, it just, Jesus doesn't seem that real to me. And all I have to do is basically press on the most basic questions. Do you spend time with him? Do you make time for him? Do you read your Bible? No, 
I, I, I don't understand it. It's difficult. Do you pray? No, I, I get distracted. Um, I'm so busy, I, you know, and it's like, well, the reason that God isn't that real to you is because you're actually not receiving anything from him. You're not opening up your heart to him. You're not only rebelling against his rule, but you're rejecting his grace. Because God wants to give you life, but when we rebel, he gives us over. That's exactly what Romans 1 said. You know, the wrath of God revealed from heaven is not God striking you with lightning when you blow it. In fact, the most terrifying thing is that when you continue to sin, and you see this again and again, is that the exceeding sinfulness of sin is it hardens the heart to the point where you don't feel guilt anymore. And there is a point where we're told in Romans 1 that God gives people over. You don't want my rule. You don't want my grace. Fine. Go your own way. Do what you want. Nothing is sadder than when God gives up on someone. And yet that is the wrath of God revealed in all of its fullness. A rejection of grace is a refusal to receive love. And what happens when we refuse to receive love is it diminishes our ability to give love. Do we understand this, that the gospel in its essence is a restoration of right relationships? To be made in the image of God means that we were made for relationship. Sin fundamentally and first and foremost destroys relationship with God, with others, and with ourselves. That's why I always say the essence of heaven is relationships restored uh, perfectly, and the essence of hell is relationships destroyed fully. That's why Jesus, in his condemnation of those who will come to him in the last day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this or that in your name? They had reduced their Christianity to a list of things that they thought would make them acceptable to God. We cast out demons in your name. We taught the scriptures. We did many signs and wonders in your name. They know his name. They're doing a lot of stuff for him. And what is his condemnation? Away from me, I never what? Knew you. I never knew you. How does he define eternal life? John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the living God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The essence of the gospel is a restoration of relationship with Christ, which then puts us in a position to be his covenant partners by having restored relationship with others. And then finally and last, we will have a right understanding of who we are meant to be. But you see, rebellion or excuse me, a rebellion over God's rule um, and a rejection of his grace leads us to the reality of what sin does. It corrupts us fully. The the Reformation gave us a concept uh, that is often misunderstood. It's It's the concept of total depravity. Now, total depravity does not mean that there is nothing good in you. What it means is that there is nothing in you that has not been infiltrated by sin. John Calvin himself said that the human heart is an idol factory. The moment you pull up or dismantle one idol, it just reveals another one that you have to deal with. And how desperately we need the gospel of grace because the more I understand the truthfulness of my dilemma, the more beautiful the good news is and the more it causes me to cast myself in total dependence upon Jesus. When I recognize that even the best part of me has been infiltrated by this 
corruption, which is why sin is often given to us in the scriptures as both a law that has been broken and a disease that creates sickness. And that's why Jesus is both the judge who is judged in our place and also the wounded healer who brings healing to us by himself absorbing our sickness into himself and dealing with it fully, taking it all the way to the end through death. So I, I think that these three things are, are good, good definitions of sin, that it's rebellion against God's rule, it's rejection of God's grace, refusal to receive his love, which brings about corruption of the whole person, which puts us in a very, very precarious situation, a place of judgment, necessary judgment, necessary death. And the outcome of those three realities is this, is the first is it's darkness. John chapter 3, verse 19 says, and this is the judgment that light came into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. You know that song that we sing, Wounded Healer? Um, it's, it's one I wrote uh, many years ago. In, in, in the first verse, it was, I was just meditating upon this, this verse in John. I was teaching through the Gospel of John. And, and what struck me was this idea that there's blindness, that sin blinds us, and that, that, uh, that, that light without sight is still perpetual night. It doesn't matter how much light is shining if you're blind. And sin blinds, which means we need a divine intervention. That's why no person can come to God of their own effort. That the gospel is about what God did for you, not what you do for him. And that Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. The beautiful thing is that he says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people unto myself. And so if Jesus is lifted up, we can believe that he's able to bring at least minimal sight to the most blind so that they can have enough sight to respond to his yes that's already been uttered over them. Um, and, and here's the thing, is that this darkness, this is why Christians can actually fall back into blindness because when we have unconfessed sin in our lives, what we're doing is we're allowing the flesh uh, to overtake us. And so you have those who have been illuminated by the good news of the gospel. And how is it that Christians, people you know who love Jesus, who follow Jesus fully, all of a sudden are back in old sins that, that you thought that they had overcome a long time ago. They knew the gospel fully and then they walk away. They become like the prodigal, the prodigal son because if sin isn't dealt with, the more we leave it, undealt with, the more we refuse to bring it to the foot of the cross, uh, that garbage piles up and it begins to blind us until the point where we don't see it as sin at all. I've seen it again and again. I cannot tell you what it means, once saved, always saved. In fact, I'm I, uh, the longer I'm a pastor, the more uncomfortable I am with that kind of terminology. The only thing I can say that is safe for sure is abiding in Christ. I'm not saying that one can lose their salvation. I'm just saying that I'm agnostic on that issue. <laughs> I'm not agnostic about Christ. <laughs> I'm agnostic on the issue of what does it mean when someone walks away? Were they ever saved? I don't know. I don't know what's going on in the hearts of people, but I do know that sin blinds. It darkens. And, and darkness is... Is, is played out in a multitude of ways. And this is the reality, that when we sin, we are often unaware of it because evil flies from the light. 
And it is when we fight against it that it becomes known. In fact, a good sign that you're growing in your relationship with Jesus is that the more you come to the light, the closer you come to the source of all that is light and all that is truth, the more horribly you are aware of how incapable you are of saving yourself. The closer I get to Jesus, the more I see the corruption of my own personhood, which causes me to cast myself in even greater dependence upon him. And I think that this is, a, this is the outcome of sin, is darkness. Also, the outcome of that rebellion and that rejection is isolation. If the essence of the gospel is to restore right relationship, to be made in the image of God means that we're made for a relationship with God, with others, and with ourselves, then the essence of sin is a destruction of that relationship in three directions. We live in a time where we have more than we've ever had before, where we live longer than we've ever lived before, where we are, for the most part, pretty safe. I mean, yes, horrible things like last like what happened last night happens, but they're, they're rare. You know, we're not in the dark ages anymore where the average person lives to 40, where plagues can wipe out, you know, over a third of the world's population, where kids would die of a common cold, where the average family lost at least two children. You know, that was like a norm even 150 years ago. The average family would lose one kid. That is not the age that we live in now. No, we have everything we could have ever dreamt of. We can accomplish more. We're told that we can do whatever we put our minds to. We live in the age of individualization to the point where even the church has reflected this attitude and turned the gospel into a personal experience between you and Jesus, which has given the church the right to say that church itself is an option. I can be a Christian and love Jesus and not go to church. That's the attitude of most urban churches. And yet... There isn't a single letter in the New Testament that's ever addressed to individuals. It's addressed to communities of faith. And part of that reason is because of the destruction of relationship that's come through, a, through the secular age that we live in. And, and you guys know what I'm talking about because we have been told that we are the most important thing in our own existence. All you have to do is look at what our, our social media has allowed us to do. You can be a family in a living room at any given moment and you can have a kid on their iPad and another kid on their iPhone and another person watching their Apple television. So what I'm saying is that Apple might be the Antichrist. No, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, what I'm saying is that we live in a time where we can actually program our realities to suit our personal needs. A whole family in a room. All I mean, how many times do you go to... Have, how many restaurants have you gone to where you see a couple on a date and they're not even looking at each other. They're just looking at their phones. How many of you are, it's hard for you to go more than 15 minutes without checking, checking your, your media, whatever it might be, Instagram. It's, it, you guys, it's a powerful, powerful influence. And it feeds into the isolation. It's the outcome of sin. It's, put the, it's, it's the, the elevation of the person to the most important thing in existence. Where our grandparents' age they were not taught that they were the most important thing in their existence. They were taught that their importance came for living for something bigger than themselves. That is challenging for us in the age that we live today. We are selfish and self-centered, and what it's brought about is the most unhappy age that we have ever seen in human history. 
depression, anxiety, mental illness continues to skyrocket year after year. The suicide rate increases in terrifying terms. People are so desperate. You don't have to have a religious fundamentalist to walk into a place and open fire anymore. People are so broken, so lonely, so isolated. They find no significance. They they put themselves at the center of their existence and the center of their existence has not brought any fulfillment because all it can bring is isolation. All it can bring is isolation. Genesis chapter 4 verse 16 shows us the isolation that comes out of sin when you see Cain after the murder of his brother. What, is it, what happens when God uh, curses Cain? It says, then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and he settled in the land of Nod east of Eden. And I think that that's what happens is our rejection of God leaves us feeling afraid and alone. And without a knowledge of God, there is no meaningful together, togetherness for us. Uh, and I think that this is, this is the essence of our belief. But the third, the third outcome of sin is, is, is death. It's not, simply, it's not simply darkness. It's not simply isolation. But most importantly, it's death, which is the great enemy of human existence. God is life and in him, uh, God, God is life. And Jesus said, uh, I have come to give you life and to give it to you abundantly. Satan comes to give us death and to give it to us abundantly. The sinfulness of our own hearts gives us death. Death is the outcome. The wages of sin, according to Romans 6, is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sin breaks us down. It breaks us down. It destroys us and kills us if left unaddressed. So there you have, I think, a biblical overview of sin. Sin is to miss the mark. It's not a measurement of how good you are. It's a measurement, or it's not, it's not a measurement of how bad you are. It's a measurement of how good you're not. We've all missed the mark. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. We have rebelled against his rule. We have rejected his grace. We are fully corrupted. Every aspect of us, it brings about darkness. It brings about isolation. It ultimately leads to death. What do you think hell is? Hell is actually a place of God's final judgment, yes, but it really is also his mercy in the new heavens and the new earth because it's the place where God says, sin shall go no further. God puts an end. There will be a day when we will live sin-free. And why is that? How bad is the bad news? It's so bad that without someone stepping into our place, we would all live for an eternity in isolation. Because hell is not a place where God is not. Hell is a place where God fully is, but relationship with him is not, which is far more terrifying. To be in the presence of a holy and perfect God, but without the ability to know him or be known by him, without the ability to know anyone else and without the ability to truly understand ourselves. Don't think of hell as a torture chamber. Think of it as an insane asylum where God, the good physician, maintains and contains its its disease from spreading into his new kingdom. Now, this is the issue, is that God wants to restore 
And God is a God of love and mercy. And in spite of all of that, this is why the good news is so good. Because we're told in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Paul writes in, to a young preacher, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 1, 15, he says, this saying is trustworthy. Here's Paul next to Jesus, probably the most righteous man who's ever walked on the earth, says this is a saying that is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He didn't come, remember Jesus said that the, the healthy don't need a physician. The sick, the sick do. And that was the problem with the religious leaders. They didn't see their own sin. They didn't see their sickness. Therefore, they did not see their need. We will not see a need for a savior if we don't understand how sick we are, that we're actually perishing. And this is what causes us to look for an answer outside of ourselves because as hard as we can try, the best effort you can give, as close as you can live, Paul says, I'm the chief sinner. I'm the chief sinner. And yet Paul said, if anyone was able to actually obtain righteousness by keeping the law, I probably was closer than any man. He wasn't bragging. He was showing that no matter how close you get, it's still not close enough. And that hopelessness is the same hopelessness that led Luther to his great awakening that we are saved by faith, by grace, not by works. And that salvation comes through one, Jesus, who actually, it says, the word became flesh. Jesus Christ, who is both 100% God and 100% man, not 50% and 50%, but both God and both fully man. The creator actually became something that he was not before. He became a creature. And in taking upon himself human flesh, Jesus is the human name for the eternal son of God. And Jesus, the word becoming flesh, the eternal son of God entered into flesh. I want you, I keep saying flesh because flesh is another word given to speak of that total depravity, sinful humanity. Flesh is always negative in the New Testament. The word becoming flesh means that God himself, through his eternal son, entered into frail, sinful flesh, but without sinning. And in that flesh, he bent it back into righteousness to God. He entered into our dilemma. He didn't just become a man. He actually entered into our lowest point, our sin. And he did it without sinning. What does it mean when it says in 2 Corinthians, he who knew no sin became sin? It doesn't mean that on the cross he had a backpack and he just at that moment carried the weight of sin. His entire life was him absorbing into himself the brokenness of humanity. That's why I think the gospel is so fascinating that you never see Jesus laughing. In fact, he was called the son of sorrows. He's the son of sorrows because he felt the full weight of our brokenness. But unlike us, he was able to see it all the way through to the end. He understands us. He understands our dilemma. You're not a bigger failure than Jesus already knows you are. Praise God. And if you're a sinner today, you're in a great position for a savior. But if you don't know how desperately broken you are, you'll never fully surrender. If you don't really know what you've been saved from, that what it costs God to give you forgiveness. Because Jesus Christ on the cross became the judge judged in your place. And Jesus Christ on the cross became the disease itself as well as 
the cure. When he died, he killed the impact of sin. Sin died with Jesus. But you see, the only place that we can find our hope, our forgiveness, our future is by entering into his life, by allowing him to enter into ours. And this is why we're told very specifically that God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever, that is any sinner in this place, believes in him. Not, I believe that he exists, but belief, if you have a headache, that's a sickness, and you put your faith in aspirin, what are you doing? You're not believing that it exists. You're believing that if you take it, it'll do what? It'll heal you or remove your headache. So faith in Jesus is not believing that he exists, but it's, it's a surrender. It's the only thing you actually have the ability to do. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. You also can't ignore it. When the Spirit reveals the truth that God became a man so that we as human beings can have a way out of our great incredible dilemma because God is not content to exist without us, that in spite of our sin, in spite of our rebellion against his rule, in spite of our rejection of his grace, he says, I still choose to love you. That's what election is about. God's freedom to love sinners in their sin. And he chooses to love you in spite of that and he offers us healing and he offers us amnesty He says, you're a lawbreaker, but in my son, I see you as one who has never broken the law. You're sick and disease-ridden, but in my son, I see you as healed and perfected by his love and his righteousness. And that's why we are told that whoever confesses with their lips that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead because that's the good news. It wouldn't be good news if Jesus stayed dead. But the punishment he took in our place, it didn't end there. Once he saw it through all the way to the end, he rose from the dead on the third day. The one who said, you'll all leave me, but my father will not leave me. And yet on the cross, he didn't even see it coming, cried out, the greatest mystery ever uttered from human lips. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced the full isolation of sin in a way that we will never have to experience if we but receive him. It's a free gift. But you see, why do so many people refuse it? Because to to receive it means you you have to admit that you need it. To receive it, you have to admit that you, there is nothing in you that could bring about God's salvation. You're, he, he's not impressed. He doesn't just want your gifts. He doesn't just want your sins. He wants the whole person. And true belief is a complete surrender of self. To say, Jesus is Lord means I'm not rebelling against your rule anymore. It's your rule, not mine. To say Jesus is Lord says, I'm not rejecting your grace any longer. I receive it because I know in the depths of my heart that even while I was a sinner, you died for me. That means that I can't change your love. You can die unsaved, but you can never say you died unloved. Jesus has offered 
full forgiveness. Make him Lord. Don't rebel against him. Receive his grace. And with that comes healing of the corrupted nature by receiving a new nature, his nature. But the only safe place is abiding in him. This is what sin is. And this is what makes the gospel such good news.